0: This is Maggie Barron from Chicago, and this WBEZ podcast is made possible with the support of listeners like me. Send WBEZ some love by making a donation online at WBEZ.org. Thanks. You are listening to the Curious City podcast from WBEZ Chicago. You ask the questions. We answer them together.
1: We all know the atomic bomb is very dangerous. Since it may be used against us, we must get ready for it. Our civil defense workers and our men in uniform will do everything they can to warn us before enemy planes can bring a bomb near us. You may be in your schoolyard playing when the signal comes. That signal means to stop whatever you are doing and get to the nearest safe place fast. First, you duck. And then you cover, and very tightly, you cover the back of your neck and your face. Duck and cover. Duck and cover. Duck and cover. Hey, curious citizens. I'm Logan Jaffe, the intern. Ian Larkin wondered about the missile defenses that peppered Chicago and the suburbs in the 1950s and 60s.
0: It absolutely blew me away that there were anti-aircraft missiles uh, stationed in or near Winneka slash Chicago. And so it, it, it did get me curious as to what the story was behind that.
1: Ian asked us to bring that Cold War history back to life. So here's Jennifer Brandel with a little time warp. Ian Larkin has a lot of questions about the Nike missiles that used to guard Chicago. Why they
0: were there, what they were trying to protect, what the purpose of the program was, how long it ran, when did they come out, (sighs) etc.
1: Okay, here goes. I'm going to take on Ian's question in two styles. First, let's do the history buffs take. If you have a fuzzy memory or didn't live through it, the Cold War was not just the backdrop of James Bond movies. It was a real quest for ideological dominance between the Soviet Union and the United States. It was communism versus capitalism. That was the theme of the era, and also the title of this old archival film from the National Education Program.
0: It is called a cold war because armed forces, although used as a threat, are rarely unleashed, and blood is not spilled in the massive battles that we think of as war.
1: The US and the Soviet Union never attacked one another directly, but they were prepared to do that. In the early 1950s, the threat of Soviet attack inspired several new US weapons, including Nike missiles. It also inspired lots of American propaganda designed to scare the Soviets and comfort Americans. America forges an ever tighter ring of air defense. With radar scanners probing the skies 24 hours a day, anti-aircraft men scramble to man the batteries of guided missiles that guard all important cities, in this case, Chicago. Nike, America's most powerful aircraft destroyer, is ready for action in a matter of minutes. Nike, whose true performance is a carefully guarded secret, tracks down its target at supersonic speeds, hurling its half-ton warhead squarely into enemy bomber. Nike missiles were deployed at more than 300 sites all over the U.S. in case Soviet planes crossed the Arctic Circle and bombed us from the north. The Chicago area had 22 missile installations spanning from Libertyville to the north, to Naperville in the west, to Homewood in the south, and Porter, Indiana in the east. Collectively, they formed a protective, quote, ring of supersonic steel.
0: The Nike rocket itself was supersonic. Uh, That is, that it went faster than the speed of sound. And made of steel, hence the phrase, rings of supersonic steel.
1: That's Mark Burhau. He's a chemist with the USDA, and he's a Nike missile historian. He co-wrote a book detailing the history of America's Nike sites and weapons. Burhau says the missile program had a couple of phases, starting in the 50s.
0: There was the Nike Ajax and the Nike Hercules. So the Nike Ajax was developed first. It was a liquid-fueled missile, and its range was about 30 miles.
1: The Nike Ajax could hit a single plane, and the Hercules could travel farther. And it had a nuclear warhead, so it could take out a whole squadron of planes at once, in theory. Impressive, maybe, but the Nike couldn't keep up with technology. By the late 1950s, the Soviets developed the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, or ICBM. ICBMs could hit targets thousands of miles away. Here's Mark Burhau
0: There's two things about them. One is they have a very wide range. And two, they're like a bullet. They go up in the air and they come down. You know, it's like trying to hit a rock with a rock.
1: The Nike missiles weren't designed to shoot down other missiles. And they were no match for ICBMs anyway. But Chicago didn't lose the Nike program right away. It took years to shut them all down.
0: I think it's important to recognize how many people in the United States depended on military spending for work.
1: That's Northwestern University Associate Professor of History, Michael Allen.
0: A program like this became uh, not just a cash cow, but a kind of thing that um, once started was very hard to stop. Experts knew that it wasn't creating
1: security. Our last Nike missile site didn't close until 1974, and there are hardly any Nike remnants left in the area. They've mostly been razed, filled in, turned into parks or built over and forgotten. As for the missiles themselves, though... As the army kept the warheads, but the rest of the systems?
0: They were all boxed up, and we sold these systems to a number of other countries, Taiwan, Japan, Greece, Turkey, Panama.
1: Okay, that's the history buff, bird's eye view of the Nike missile story in Chicago. Now comes the human story that our question asker, Ian Larkin, wanted too.
0: I would love to be transported back in time to... To hear, you know, what the mindset of America was at, at that point, particularly those people that either worked there or lived in and around those those sites. I remember having. Um, nightmares about this as a child. I grew up in the 50s in Gary, Indiana. I live in Orland Park, Illinois. And I grew up in Chicago in
1: the Woodlawn area. I grew up in Highland Park. My feeling as a small child was that Chicago was the center of the earth, and we needed a lot of protection. We needed the Army, we needed
0: the Navy, and we needed Nike missiles. I have a vivid memory of asking my mother, where we were keeping our stockpiles of supplies and where our shelter was going to be in case of a nuclear attack because we lived in an apartment building. And I remember the old duck and cover drill.
1: Tuck our heads between our legs and kiss our butt goodbye. It was kind of scary. Driving down Lakeshore Drive and seeing all the little hills and knowing that there were live missiles there.
0: The majority of the population did not know that they had the nuclear capabilities in their communities. I worked on the Nike sites in Mundelein and in Northfield. I worked in the Nike program as a soldier. The Ajax was a liquid fuel missile and was not fun to work on. We had some people go to the hospital from a gas that it emitted. You know, it is fairly serious stuff. I decided I was not going to live in fear. I would just realize that the Cold War was something being thought of by politicians and military people. There's bullies around, you know, schoolyard bullies, heads of state bullies. You know, if if you can make them think twice before going after you, that might save your neck.
1: Hey, it's Jen here again in studio, and the feature piece you just heard was, of course, just part of the story. I couldn't fit all the interesting tidbits that I came across in researching this into that piece, so I thought I'd bring you a couple extra things that surprised me when I first learned them. The first has to do with the technology of the time and why there were three Nike missile sites based on Chicago's coastline that is on Lake Michigan. Here's Mark Berhow, the guy who wrote a book on Nike missile sites, explaining more.
0: So Lake Michigan presents a problem because of the detection systems. A Soviet bomber group could actually have flown over the pole and across Canada. And then if it was flying down Lake Michigan, because of the range of the radars, it would have had a difficult time picking them up.
1: This amazing resource that we have, Lake Michigan, was actually a liability. Because the radar systems were so limited at the time, it was basically this blank spot where they couldn't tell if there was an enemy plane until it would have gotten very, very close to Chicago. The other thing that surprised me was from a comment that came in after our story aired. We got this note from someone identifying themselves as Naperville resident. One angle to the story that was missed was that these sites are often contaminated by chlorinated solvents used in degreasers as part of maintenance of the missile systems. Naperville site is enrolled in the Illinois EPA's Voluntary Site Remediation Program due to the carcinogenic chlorinated solvents and the site's proximity to houses using potable water wells. And it is a park. So I checked out this claim, and it turns out it's true. The Environmental Protection Agency is looking into bioremediation, basically trying to clean up the site in Naperville where the nuclear missiles were housed, because apparently there were a lot of contaminants involved in Nike missile sites that leached into groundwater in the soil and that could be harmful for people. They found that the water in the Naperville site exceeds the EPA level for safe drinking water. So right now they're looking into ways to clean up that site, which is currently a, a park, a sports field. So it was just kind of fascinating that, A, not only do so many people not know about the Nike missile history, including myself and a lot of our colleagues, when we first got this question in, we had to Google it and make sure that this this guy's claim was true. We, we had no idea. And the other thing was, in thinking about these sites being all but gone, you know, most of them have been raised and business parks have been built over. They've been totally forgotten that there is still this legacy of them, not only just in our minds, but in the soil itself and it's going to take a long time for that to go away. Well, if you're interested in checking out the maps of where the missiles were and some archival photos and more history, you can head to wbez.org slash Curious City. Thanks again to Ian Larkin for asking us questions about the Nike missile program and for reminding us of how their stay here affected everyone. You heard from Deborah Rade, Cheryl Albers, Rich Hayes, Diane Adams, John Henry, and Ed Thalen. Thanks to Michael DeBonis for contributing. Curious City is produced by WBEZ Chicago, Ziga, and AIR, the Association of Independence in Radio. Our senior producer is Jennifer Brandel. Sean Ali edits the series, and Logan Jaffe is our intern. The Curious City podcast is produced with production help from Sarah Liu and editing oversight by Robin Amer. You can subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or listen to our back catalog in SoundCloud. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at WBEZ Curious City. Lead Financial Support comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. And one more thing. So we're wrapping up season one of the Curious City podcast next week. This is our second to last episode, sorry to say. But we're going to take a little break and recuperate, recalibrate, and think more about how we want to do the podcast in the future. And we would love your feedback in doing that. You can go to wbez.org slash Curious City. We have a short little survey there and we would be so appreciative if you could just take two minutes out of your day and let us know what you think. What did you like? What didn't you like? What would you like more of all that kind of stuff so thank you so much in advance for going over there and also just for being a listener